God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today. You know, I've been away for a little while. Uh, I was sick. My wife was sick. and I had to take care of her when she was sick. She was taking care of me when I was sick. And actually, that goes in with our message today because today we're going to be studying about how God made Eve for Adam. And so you can see how the two become one flesh and they take care of each other. Two heads are smarter than one. Actually, my wife is a lot smarter than me. But it's so good to be back again with you today. Thanks so much for coming. And we realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there. So we bring that service to you wherever you are. And we hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and His promises in His Word for your life. Would you open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2? That's where we're going to be today. And we'll also show those verses up here in the video for you just to make it easier for you to follow along, just like we always do. Today we're going to be continuing in our Beginnings series in the Book of Beginnings, Hasefa Bereshit, the Book of Beginnings. That's what we call the Book of Genesis in Hebrew, Hasefer, the Book Bereshit, beginning, the book of the beginning, the beginnings. And we're going to be in Genesis today in chapter 2 talking about the beginnings. That's why we called this the beginning series. Well, we talked about the beginning of creation in chapter 1. And now we're talking about the beginning of mankind in chapter 2. Last week, though, we covered that part in the first seven verses of chapter 2 where the Lord is telling us about the Shabbat. You know it in English as the Sabbath or the seventh day, the day of rest. And we explained what that really is and how it's, a, how it's an image of entering into the rest that God has for us to cease from our labors and trying to be righteous all the time and trying to keep all the law all the time. And to cease from all that stress and all that worry and to enter into his rest because he had prophesied through the prophets that he was going to send this Mashiach, as we say Messiah in English. And that this Mashiach, the Messiah, was going to take away the sins of the people. And with our sins taken away and our entry being taken care of that we can enter into the everlasting life in the kingdom of heaven. With that all done, we can rest. And that's what we talked about last week. But today, we're going to be talking about verses 8 through the end of chapter 2. Let's take a look together and see what it says. It says in Genesis 2, verse 8, it says, The Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now let's talk about that briefly for a little bit. The Lord, it says, planted a garden eastward in Eden, and He put the man there whom He had formed. And then out of the ground He caused the trees to grow and everything that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. We mentioned before in the last couple of weeks, how everything was being put in place 
for when God would create man in his own image, a special creation, not just another animal, but someone who was actually made in the very image of God. And we're not talking about a physical image. We're not saying that God was this tall and had this color of hair and had two arms and had this kind of a build. That's not the way we're talking about. We're talking about how the Bible says about God, how the Bible describes God, that He is spirit. He's everlasting spirit. He doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that we have. The spirit is everlasting. The spirit is eternal. The bodies fade away. The bodies crumble down and decay after a while. They start breaking. If you're older in life, you know what I'm talking about. Even if you're younger, you know you've maybe hit some things on your body or you've broken something at one time or another, and it's, it hurt. And it didn't work like it did before. That's the way it is with our bodies. They're kind of like automobiles. Automobiles get so many miles on them, so many kilometers on them, and they start wearing out. And they need repairs. Well, that's the way our bodies are. Well, God knew that. But He made us also, instead of just with the body, He made us in His image. That means we were created with an eternal spirit, just like our Heavenly Father has. We were designed to live forever. That's what I'm saying. But the sin that we have in our life causes our body to decay, and the body and the flesh passes away. But those who believe on God's salvation in His Mashiach, in His Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the, the Christ, the Messiah, those people are saved. And after this life on earth, their spirit, which is the real you, the inside you, the one that's thinking, the one that has that knowledge and everything, the real you is what's going to live forever. And you're going to step out of that old beat-up car, that old jalopy. You're going to slam the door and you're going to walk away from that into an upgrade that God has for you that is a whole lot better. I'll bet your tet off. It's a lot better than what you've got in this old body. I'm looking forward to that day. As the older I get, the more I look forward to that day. And I'm not in any hurry to leave. But, you know, the Apostle Paul put it like this. In this life, it's like we're living in a tent. But God has mansion for us. He's got something prepared for us that He's been preparing for us. And He's going to return and get us and take us with Him that where He is, there we may be also. Now, we're talking about these first verses today, verse 8 and 9. And it says, God made this garden. He caused all of these trees that are pleasant to look at and good for food to grow. And Then it says there was a tree of life also in the middle of the garden, the tree of life. You could eat of that tree and live forever. But then it says there was also this other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, that's going to pose a problem to us in a little bit. We'll talk about why that tree is there. It's going on down and it's going to talk about some rivers that came out of the garden. And verse 10 says, Now there was a river that went out of Eden to water the garden. And from there it parted and became four rivers or river heads. The name of the first was Pishon. The name of the second, well it says the name of the first is Pishon and it is the one goes around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, it says. And Bedelium 
and the onyx stone are also there, it says. Then verse 13, it talks about the second river. It says the name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one that goes around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Hidekel, and it is the one that goes toward the east of Assyria, or Ashur, as they had said in the Hebrew, in the Bible, in the Torah. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, I want to just touch a little bit on these rivers. Why is it telling us about these? It's basically showing us these rivers and this Garden of Eden was a beautiful place. It had all the trees and beautiful to look at, wonderful food to eat there. And then it had these rivers, plenty of spring, fresh, clear, refreshing water. Everything that you needed. And oh, by the way, the tree of life was in the middle of the garden. And if you eat of that, you live forever. And there it was freely available for Adam to eat of. Eternal life before sin entered the picture. Everlasting life. And believe me, as the Bible teaches, once a sin is atoned for, and all who believe on the atoning sacrifice that God gave His only begotten Son, Yeshua HaMashiach, they will have their sins taken away. And then it will be as it was at the first. Everything will be beautiful. No more pain. No more tears. No more death. It will all be restored. God will not be defeated. Everything that He did will succeed. We have a temporary little bump in the road here and, and sin enters the picture. But we're talking about eternity, not a few thousand years here. We're talking about eternity, everlasting life. And God's made provision to put all of this stuff back in place and it'll be even better than before. One of these rivers, a lot of people say, well, I'd like to go and try to find those rivers. What they really mean is they'd like to bring up Google and search for those rivers and see if anyone else has found them because no one really goes after those things, you know. And some people have wondered about that and they've tried to use the clues that the Bible has and the things that are being talked about about these rivers. But the thing a lot of people miss when they look for this one river that turned into four is they miss the fact that in Genesis 6 and 7, the global flood happened. Destroyed all life on earth. The water was so deep, it covered the tallest mountains. It overwhelmed the tallest hills, covered the tallest mountains. As you can imagine, water that violent, rushing across the face of all the earth, that deep with so much force, with so much currents in that water, because of the cataclysmic storms that had happened in the floodgates of the deep being broken up, the water gushing out, throwing these huge currents of water like you've never seen in water or the ocean today. And these currents were deep and, and tall and covering the mountains. They would have absolutely wiped out all of the features, all of the surface features on the planet Earth. And so any trace of what those rivers used to look like that were coming out of the Garden of Eden. It's no longer to be found right now. God's going to do a new thing later on when He brings back His dwelling with man on earth. So don't be going looking for those rivers. It's better just to look into the treasures that the Word of God has for you today. Genesis 
2, verse 15 through 17, is talking about something after those rivers now. And it says, Then the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. Okay, there's something important you need to pick up on here. Something you need to catch here while we're here. There is purpose in our lives, even in heaven. If you think of heaven as you're just going to be this fat little baby sitting on a cloud playing a harp all day, you're mistaken. Because before sin entered the picture, when God was going to dwell with man on earth and God walked with Adam, when God was there with Adam, He had something for Adam to do. Look again at what it says in verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. Man had a meaningful task to accomplish. And keeping the Garden of Eden wasn't any small chore. You think, yeah, well, I've mowed the lawn before. I've, I've cut some flowers. I've, cut, I've picked up some weeds and threw them away. Yeah, but did you take care of something as large and grand as the Garden of Eden that had the tree of life in it, that had all of these trees and all of these animals that were going to be placed there by God. Oh, that would have been a great job. Now, think about this. If you think of Adam like yourself, oh, he's just a person just like me. He had two hands, two feet, and he probably got tired. He probably had to ask God for a cup of coffee every now and then to, to help him wake up and stay awake. No, that wasn't the way it is. Adam was kind of like a superman, if you will, at that time. Sin had not taken the toll that it takes on our bodies. Adam was extremely intelligent. He was strong. He was fit for the job. And God put him in that garden, that man, Adam, to keep all of the Garden of Eden and to tend it. Not just to watch over it, but to take care of it and keep it. To keep it nice. To make sure everything was going good. No, Adam was not like what we see today in humans. He was living before sin came on the scene. And he was an amazing creature. The first human, yes. The first man, yes. But before sin came, he was able to do this monumental, huge job that God had for him to do. And it doesn't say anywhere that Adam complained about that. You had a purpose before the fall of man. And you will have a purpose in heaven after we are back there in his kingdom with the Lord. And that purpose can be amazing. You're not going to be sitting on that cloud playing that harp all day. God has a wonderful purpose and plan for you in His kingdom. And oh, by the way, when you belong to Him, that purpose starts now. Your purpose in life, your plan that He has for you in life can start today when you give life to Him. And then when you get into the kingdom of heaven... And you become like an angel, is what Jesus said, that after this life on earth, that we're like the angels in heaven. Hugely powerful creatures, created by God, going to and fro and doing all that He bids them to do. Powerful, mighty, 
fast, intelligent, keeping the messages of God and bringing them to all whom God sends them. Oh, God has a purpose for your life as well. You can count on that. He's going to bring you into a purposeful existence in His kingdom, and you are going to be challenged, and you are going to be amazed, and you are going to be in a glorified body that's going to be able to take care of all that huge responsibility. Verse 16 then continues and says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Oh, look at these verses. And the Lord God commanded the man, it says in verse 16, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it says in verse 17, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of that, you shall surely die. You won't live forever anymore then. You'll die. Your body will waste away. You're not going to be special and strong spiritually anymore. Oh, you'll be special in God's eyes. But the sin will eat away at you like a sickness that has no cure. And eventually it will take your life. Unless God intervenes, you see. And He did intervene by sending His one and only Son to take our place on the cross. He who knew no sin had our sins put upon himself. He wasn't a sinner. He was without sin. And so he qualified it being the blemish-free sacrifice for our sins, just like it had the Passover lamb talked about in the book of Exodus. So he was without sin, but he had our sins put upon him that he might make an atonement for us. He paid the price for our sins. That we wouldn't have to pay the price. God says here, the day, of you eat, the day you eat of that tree of good and evil, you'll surely die. Well, we sinned. We disobeyed God. Well, what are you saying, Pastor Stephen? It's like eating from a tree is like disobeying God and sin. That's exactly what I'm saying. God put that tree in the Garden of Eden. Now, why did He put that tree there? If he knew that man couldn't eat of it, if he knew that man would be tempted to eat of it, why did he put that tree there? Well, consider this. God could have made mankind as robots. Here's what I'm saying. He could have programmed them to love him to where they would say, I love you, God. I love you, God. Oh, God, you are good. He didn't do that. He wanted real worship. He wanted real love. He wanted man to look up in the stars of the sky. He wanted to look around at the trees and the, the plants and the animals that God had created and be inspired and want to know such a wonderful creator that would make all of these things. The one who had the power and the knowledge and the wisdom to create all of these things. And to discover God and then say to God, God, you are awesome. You are wonderful. I give my life to you. I want to know you. I want to know more about you. God, teach me your ways. That's the kind of love God wanted. He didn't want to program you like a computerized robot. 
But how do you test such love? You make a test. You put that tree in the Garden of Eden, the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you tell the man, don't eat of this, because in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. It was a test. Man had to make a choice. Those of you who believe that God doesn't allow man to make a choice about his salvation, how do you deal with this story about Adam in the book of Genesis and chapter 2 and chapter 3 as we're going to be seeing next week too? How do you deal with that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? God obviously gave man a choice. He said, don't eat of this. In the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. God gave Adam a choice. He gave man a choice. If he didn't want man to make that choice on his own, he would not have put the tree there. What would the point have been? If God intended to save man and not have man sin, he wouldn't have put the temptation there. But the temptation was there so that man could make a choice. In the same way, you have a choice to make today. You could keep your life for yourself and try to do the best you can through life, but you're going to fail. You're going to do the wrong things. You're going to fall. You're going to make the wrong choices. Oh, not just once. Many times you're going to make those wrong choices. And when you do, those are going to have consequences. There's going to be a punishment for those things. You've missed the mark. That's what the word sin means. When we say, when we say chataim, we're talking about sins. And it basically means you missed the mark. What mark are you talking about, Pastor Stephen? The mark of perfection that God wants from you. You say, well, nobody's perfect. I can't be perfect. No, you can't on your own. But once you're in God's kingdom and His Spirit is within you and you are, have your sins covered by the blood of the blemish-free Lamb of God, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ, then you will be to God appearing perfect because your sins have been covered. God says, I will forget to remember your sins anymore. I'll take your sins and put them as far away from me as east is from west. That's what he says in the Tanakh in the Old Testament. But he put this here as a choice for man to make. Because yes, it is true, man does have the free will to make a choice. Otherwise, he would just be programmed to either come to God or to not come to God. But God wanted the love from man to be real, so he gave him a choice. In the same way, don't you want your own children? Don't you want your family members? Don't you want other people to love you because they see who you are and how you live and what you do and what you say and how you carry yourself? Don't you want people to love you because they're drawn to you? Or do you want them to love you because they're being forced to? Because they've been programmed to come to you and say, Oh, you're such a wonderful friend. I love you and I just want to be with you forever. And uh, will you marry me? And be like a robot. That's not love. That's something different. God didn't want to program people. God wanted you to realize who He is 
and make your own free choice to choose Him, to choose life. Then we read on down in Genesis 2 verse 18. And it says God's going to make a helper comparable to Adam. Let's read it. Verse 18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable or like him. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. Now, this is the first time in the book of Genesis, after God created all of creation, he looked at things and he said, he looked at light and he said, it is good. He created this on this day and he said, it is good. He created this on this other day and he said, it's good. It's all good. And that's how we left Genesis chapter 1. And now in the 18th verse of chapter 2, God looks at this one lone man. Maybe I should say this one lonely man. And God says, it is not good that man should be alone. God knew what he was going to do. He knew that Adam needed someone else. And God said, I will make him a helper comparable to him. He said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. It's not good that man should be alone. For the first time, God saw that there wasn't something good, and he set out to fix it. God never intended for man to be alone, either in the marital or the social sense. In other words, some people can go through life without being married. But if you go through life without being married, and you don't want to have social contact with anyone else, that's a very sad existence. In fact, it's people like that that usually cause great crime and great harm because they haven't had the influence of other people on their lives. They haven't known love. They haven't known companionship. And because of that, they become isolated and alone. Marriage in particular has a blessing associated with it. It's a civilized influence on man. Man sees that it's not all about him. The woman sees that it's not all about her. They start putting their affection and their love and kindness toward each other, taking care of each other, looking out for each other's needs, wanting to make life better for each other. And they decide that they're going to face life and go through it together. That no matter what comes their way, no matter what life throws at them, they're going to face it together because they're married. The most wild and violent sociopathic men in history have always been single, never under the plan that God gave them to influence man for good. That is not good. So like God said, it's not good for man to be alone. And then he said, I'll make a helper comparable to him. God's blueprint for creating this companion to Adam was to make a helper comparable to Adam. Comparable to Adam. In other words, equal to Adam. A helper comparable. In the reference of the marriage relationship, God created the woman to be a perfectly suitable helper to man. This means that God gave the plan and agenda to Adam and that Adam and the woman would work together as equals to fulfill it. 
each bringing a different perspective to the problem and facing it together, hand in hand, arm in arm, walking not behind the man, but walking equal with the man, the man leading the family spiritually, the woman coming along to help. Now, it in the world, the world seems to think a helper is someone lower than the one that they're helping. The world seems to think that a helper is not any one who can really do big things. The world sees a helper in a position of inferiority. They're a lesser person than the person they're helping. But that's not the way God sees it. In fact, Jesus said that the greatest in the kingdom of heaven would be a servant of all. Remember that Jesus was speaking of the Holy Spirit in the book of John when He said, he, when He, the Holy Spirit, as the Helper would come, when He, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom He would send, comes, He will lead us into the truth. He will guide us. He will help us. He's speaking of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as the Helper. So tell me, that the helper is some, somehow a second-class person or a second-class member of a marriage. That's not true. They are co-equal partners. One helps in the leadership and the other makes the decisions of the leadership, but they are co-equal and both made in the image of God. As it said in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, and in the image of God He made them, created them, Male and female, He created them, you see. Mankind made in the image of God. So don't think of a helper as someone who is of lesser importance. In God's design, both the man and the woman are equal, as it said in Genesis 1. They have different roles, and we're going to see in a few minutes some of those roles. But they have a, both have, them have a vital part in God's plan and both are equally loved and equally called by God. A helper, comparable. Not only was the woman to be a helper, but she was made to be comparable to the man. Comparable. We get that from the word compare. It was one who would compare to man. She would stand there and be an equal. She was equal in intelligence. She was equal in seeing and discerning things and understanding things. She should be considered and honored as such in a marriage. Guys, if you're not honoring your wife as an equal, you're missing out on what God's asked you to do. A woman or a wife cannot be regarded as a mere tool or a worker, but as an equal partner in God's grace and an equal partner in importance for the ministry that God's called them to. I know some people, I've heard of some people that view their wife only as a person who can get another job so that they can have a bigger house or buy cars for themselves or something. And that's, they see a marriage as a business partnership. Some people even today sign a contract saying, okay, if we get married, then you're going to do this and this with your money and I'm going to do this and this with my money and I'll have my money and you'll have your money and you better not touch my money and I won't bother your money. And they write it out as if it's a business contract. Where's the love? Where is the love? If your marriage has become a business arrangement, you are missing 
the plan of God for your life. Your marriage could be much happier if you would stop being selfish and learn to serve your spouse. Husbands, if you would just reach out and learn to serve your wife, she'll be amazed. If you would take your mantle upon you to lead the family in spiritual things and draw that family closer to God and say, we're going to church today, we're going to learn about the Lord, our kids are going to go, they're going to learn about God, and our family's going to be a, a family of God. As Joshua said later on in the Torah, he said, but as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. You be that kind of a man, you see how your wife responds to that. Wives, you turn around, stop being worried about yourself, stop seeking your own things and thinking of your life as separate from His. You serve Him. You go out of the way with each other to serve each other. Here, let me get that door. No, it's okay, I'll get it for you. And you go that way and all that love will turn your marriage right side up. Because if it's not like that, it's upside down. But God can heal that marriage if you just do what God has planned for your marriage. Regard your wife, husbands. Regard your wife as a helper, co-equal to you. Wives, respect your husband as someone whom God is leading your family through. And you and him together go forth and execute that plan that God has given you to do in life. Genesis then in chapter 2, verse 19 through 20, as we're getting closer to the end, it says that no helper was found for Adam among all the animals. Let's read it. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever, call, whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. And, but for Adam, look at that, but for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. Well, Pastor Stephen, you just said that God saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone, for man to be alone. And so why is it now talking about all these animals that God is forming? Is it just going to leave Adam alone? No, there's a reason why God started making these animals out of the ground and all these living things. Oh, He had created their concepts. He had created their life and everything. But now He's forming the bodies of them out of the ground. And why is it doing this, though, after He's talking about Adam being alone? Think about this. Adam is given charge of the whole garden. God brings the animals to him and tells him, I want you to name these animals. Whatever you call them, that'll be their name. Adam says, okay, I'm the, I'm the caretaker of the garden. As soon as I finish picking these weeds up over here, trimming this tree over here, I'll just come over and I'll just sit down. You bring all those animals to me and I'll give them a name. Now, those of you who think that Adam was some sort of a caveman who wasn't so smart, consider this. Thousands and thousands of animals in different species and everything, they all were brought to Adam, and he had to name them. I was a computer engineer for many, many years. Let's be honest, many decades. It's there. It's gray. Yeah, there's some gray there. So basically, 
That's a database. You need a program, a piece of software, so large that it can keep track of all of these names and different things. Well, why is that important, Stephen? What are you saying? I'm saying this. If you brought thousands of animals and creatures to Adam, Adam gives them all a unique name. At some point in time, if Adam's not really, really highly intelligent, more intelligent than most of us, if he's not really intelligent, how's he going to keep track of what names he's already used? How is Adam, he doesn't have anyone there with him, no one to tell him when you bring that elephant, and he said, ah, I think I'll call that a lion. <laughs> Someone's not there to say, uh, Adam, you've already used that name on, on that animal over there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, yeah, it wasn't like that. Adam was extremely highly intelligent. He had abilities that you and I don't have, you see. Here's what I'm saying. God created him, and he was highly intelligent. Just like he was mature at the time that God created him, God created him to be highly, highly intelligent. God had big plans for mankind. Sin ruined a lot of those plans, but God fought it and restored it and gained the victory for us through Jesus the Messiah. So Adam was really smart. But then the other thing is, is that Adam was seeing these animals that God was bringing to them. And we know from Genesis chapter 6 when God brought the animals to Noah. He brought the animals to Noah in a pair. There was a male and a female. I believe that what God was doing was bringing these animals to Adam, that Adam would see that each of these animals had a mate. He could tell they were different, the male from the female. He could see that they were together. And Adam was thinking, okay, I'm, I'm naming all these animals and Okay, and he probably reaches the end. He starts thinking about it. Well, you know, all these animals have a mate. And then he kind of lowers his head and he goes, but uh, everything's got a mate except I don't have a mate. I don't have anyone to be with me. I'm alone. So, yes, God saw that it was not good for Adam to be alone. And so God showed through all of these animals showed Adam, made Adam realize that it was not good for him to be alone too. And for the first time, Adam was thinking about this, you see. And he was thinking about, well, God, I need somebody too. God said, I know. God is showing him, look, I'm bringing these animals to you. Let's see if you can understand what I'm showing you here. And he did. Adam was really intelligent. He got it. He saw he said, wow, they all have companions. I don't have a companion in life. And so Adam found out that he needed somebody. There's a reason why God had these animals and brought them to Adam. It was the proper time for Adam to realize that he needed someone comparable to him. And he also saw that none of the animals were comparable to him. He couldn't talk with the animals. They didn't look like him. They didn't act like him. They didn't eat like him. They didn't do any of it. They didn't walk like him. They, they had their own lives and they were doing things differently. He looked at it and he knew right off. 
as soon as he saw some of these animals, he'd go, well, that's not a companion for me. Who's going to be my friend in life? And so God used these animals to show Adam that he was better off with someone that was his equal. And as the verse says, for Adam there was not found a helper. And God caused a sleep to fall on Adam, it says in verse 21. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. Look at that verse again. God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. This is the first recorded surgery in history. And he even used the same anesthetic on Adam. The surgeon used today, they put you to sleep. Today, doctors still put people to sleep for major surgeries. That rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, it said. God used Adam's own body to create Eve, to remind Adam forever that they are essentially one. He took that part from Adam's own body. Now think about this. That rib is a strong structural support. I'm speaking in engineering terms. If you've ever seen the way a boat is built, you'll see that there's a spine that runs down the middle. There's these ribs that come up the side that hold the planks of the side of the boat. The ribs hold the structure in place. Without the ribs in us, we would just fall over. We wouldn't have anything holding us up. What's going to hold us up? That ripping stomach that we have? Oh, no, that's not going to do it, especially in my case. What's going to hold you up if there's no strong, sturdy, hard ribs inside doing it? Ribs are a structure. They hold something up. He took, God took that rib from Adam and he made the woman. She was going to hold him up in prayer. She was going to be part of his structure, part of his support, protecting the important heart inside that the ribs form a cage around to protect that all-important heart inside, providing strength to stand and face the winds and the trials and the bumps in the road as you go through life. The ribs are important in life. There's a Jewish saying that we like to quote even in Christianity today, and says that the woman was not taken from Adam's head, that she would be over him. And she was not taken from his feet, that she would be under him. But the woman was taken from his rib, that she would be equal to him and be near him, so that she could be protected by him and close to his heart. As Adam came to know Eve, he would see many ways that they were different but he would never forget that they were essentially one and that they were made of the same substance. You see, men and women are more alike than they are different. In fact, it's interesting that, you know, God could have done this from the rib. You say, well, how can he do that? Well, did you know that in every cell of the body, there is what we call DNA? DNA. That is the double helix, the most complex molecule known to man that is, identifies every single feature of our body, of our body. 
every single feature in it. And DNA, that molecule, is contained in every living cell in our body. I told you I'd give you some science this week. Here it is. DNA stands for dioxyribonucleic acid. Dioxy, D, ribonucleic, N, acid, A. DNA, dioxyribonucleic acid. It's the most complex molecule known to man. It is in every cell, every tiny, tiny cell of our body and everything. And all of our body is made up of cells, those ribs, those bones, that liver, that stomach, that tongue, that face, that eye, that ear. All of it is made up of living cells. And inside those living cells is a copy of the whole blueprint for our life. Everything in our body could be made based on the blueprint that's located in the DNA or the dioxyribonucleic acid molecule. Now, how complex is it? Well, let's just put it like this. It's very, 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 very thin. Very, 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 very small. In fact, it contains so much information that if you were to take and make that information contained in a single molecule into books, the books that would exist would fill the Grand Canyon in Arizona in the United States. Huge, huge carved out holes and canyons in the ground going for miles and miles and miles. Dioxyribonucleic acid. Now, just to give you an idea how much of this you have in your body, this blueprint that's in each and every living cell, each DNA molecule, if you could stretch it out, and it's so thin you couldn't even see it, is it thinner than a hair? Thousands of times thinner than a hair. Is it uh, thinner than a spider's web? Thousands of times thinner than that. If you could stretch it out, each DNA molecule would be about six feet in length. And they're wrapped around this protein called a histone, and they're wrapped around them so that kind of like thread is wrapped around a spool, if you will, kind of a ball-like structure. Then that ball-like structure, those are wrapped around so that they're kind of like in a suitcase folded up to where they won't get damaged as that cell divides. And now there's two cells. A copy of that DNA goes with the new cell and stays with the old cell as well. You have the average body that a man has, that a person has today. Average, I'm saying. Bigger and smaller. Average size body has about 100 trillion, 100 trillion cells in it. Each one has a copy of the DNA. If you were to take those DNAs at about six feet or about two meters in length, each one of them, and you were to tie them together with all of those 100 trillion cells and their copy, each of the DNA, you would have enough DNA string to go 110 billion miles. 110 billion miles are about 160, 170 billion kilometers. Just to give you an idea how far that is, the sun is 93 million miles from the planet Earth. 93 million miles away. If you went round trip from here to the sun, 93 million miles, and you turned around and came back to Earth, 93 more million miles, 186 million miles. The DNA that you could tie together from all the cells in your body would go 110 billion miles. 
are enough for 600 round trips from earth to sun and back. And God took the blueprint that He made man with and He made woman. Now, we know that males in the human species are made with an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. And the chromosomes are the things that encapsulate or encase that protein with the DNA molecule wrapped around it. A man has what's called an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. A woman has two X chromosomes. They don't have a Y chromosome. Now some of you are thinking, well that explains why I never know why she's doing something or what she's saying. No, that's not it, and you better be careful. In fact, I think I'm probably already in trouble. I, I'm going to need a place to sleep tonight, probably. Uh, just kidding, but God made us different. We're equal, man and woman, but we're different also. There's things about us that are different in the way that we live, in the way that we think. But the woman was created as a helper, perfectly suited to man, and to be his helper throughout life. Adam's brilliant understanding of who Eve is is portrayed in the next verse. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones. When God brought the woman to him, Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And you look at that and you go, okay, woman, I get it. The man on the end of woman and, and man, I get it. You know, woman was taken out of man. No, you're missing it. In Hebrew, man is pronounced ish. Ish is the Hebrew word for man. Guess what the Hebrew word for woman is? Isha. Isha. So Isha came out of ish. Woman came out of man. She was taken out of man. You see, she came from man, but there was this extra ah on the end. So when you look at her, you saw ah. Man was drawn to her. And Adam found a helpmate comparable to him. Adam was brilliant that he understood the woman and what her purpose in life was. Now, it's interesting the things that we're studying about now. Oh, there's so much more in the science that we'll go through next week. But it says in verse 24, And Adam continued, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one. And then it says in verse 25, as it closes, They were both naked, and the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Well, what is that saying? It says the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they're going to live together. They're going to be one. They're not just going to pay the rent together. They're just not going to share the bills or share the groceries together. They are going to be one. They will face everything in life. Everything that comes their way, they will face it as one. They will not leave each other behind. They will go forward together. They will protect each other. The rib, remember the structure holding up in prayer. The rib, remember protection close to the heart. The rib, they were one and they would be joined together and be one flesh. That's what that means.
Then the last verse, it says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, probably you're seeing that and you go, Ooh, naked. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> What's going on here in the Bible? It's understand something. Like the other animals, really, that was not anything that was strange. All of those animals didn't have clothes on them. Adam didn't know what clothes was. You couldn't go down to Walmart and buy a pair of blue jeans. You couldn't go to Castro and get some nice-looking jacket. Those things didn't exist. Adam was created as he was. Eve was made as she was. And they didn't have the clothes on, but they didn't know that was wrong then either. That was just normal, you see. And if you think that's strange for human beings, consider a little baby, an innocent little baby. They don't think anything about clothes, do they? Oh, no. They don't know anything at all about those clothes. You dress them up to, to, so they look like what you want them to look like, but they have no shame at all. And they'll just go around just without those clothes. It's because they're innocent. And Adam and Eve were both innocent. They didn't know about clothes or anything like that. So that wraps up this chapter. That wraps up this chapter, and next week we're going to see the amazing thing that happened and the consequences when sin came on the scene and how it affected mankind, how it affected society. And that effect is with us today. But God has a plan, and we're going to see that plan next week too, that how He is restoring mankind to Himself and bringing man back to everlasting life and rescuing man from the jaws of death that sin brings. You don't want to miss this service next week. You don't want to miss it. I'm telling you, you got to be there. Get somebody, you bring them. Why don't you give your life to God today, right now? If you call out to Him, He'll hear that cry. He'll answer you. He'll rescue you from that darkness you're in, that trial you're in, and He'll shine His light on your heart, and you'll be given new life newness of life. He'll change you into a new person. Throw all of that bad history and baggage away. You'll be completely new, given a new start, a new heart, a new you. He'll give you everlasting life in heaven. That's guaranteed by God Himself. It's His promise to you. We want to give you an opportunity to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Lord and to receive God's peace in your life today. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment. Just pray something like this. You can repeat after me if you'd like. Just say, God, I do want to know You and have real peace in life. I believe on Your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to You. Thank You, Lord. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, God heard you. And He's already started working in your life. A little seed's been planted deep down in your heart. And over time, you're going to begin to see the wonderful changes that God's making in your heart. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about Him in His Word. Talk to Him every day in prayer. He's going to do wonderful things in your life.